This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you too. It has just started pouring with rain in North London. It's a pathetic fallacy. Suddenly the skies have opened and uh, it reflects, I guess, the general demeanour of the Arsenal fan right now. Yeah, look... Arsenal have lost their opening game of the season while Lucas Torreira posts pictures of himself at the fairground, Mm. sparking the president of Rwanda into a Twitter tirade against the style of football that we play. The Premier League is back, baby. It is back. And that's a kind of... era (laughs) never went away, did it? It just got a bit quieter and now it's back in in full flow. It's Uh, like um, one of those... Is it like a, there's like this insect that only hatches every 39 years or something like that? Right. You think it's gone, you think it's dead, but then like every 39 years there's a great, what do you call it, like a flock of insects, not a flock, a, a swarm. A swarm, They yeah. just come up from out of the ground, and that's where the banter era was. It was just hibernating, hiding away, but it's, it's back in full, in full effect. Holy shit. Yeah, Friday as a 24 hours, it was kind of like a game of Arsenal bingo, wasn't it? Where you were just ticking off things. Even things that sort of, you know, we don't necessarily associate with the modern contemporaneous Arsenal, like being really vulnerable to set pieces and long throws. They reared their head (laughs) again. Um, A Friday the 13th as well. (laughs) It was a kind of a greatest hits tour of all things Arsenal. Um, But we've had at least, you know, a day to recover from that and try our best to ignore all the other Premier League football uh, and those fans who have been permitted to experience joy. Oh, I did, I I was unable to ignore it yesterday because I was uh, in the kitchen cooking so I was watching football on the uh, on the iPad and it was 1-1 between Man United and Leeds. I just sort of turned on at the start of the second half. Luke Ayling, former Arsenal man, scored a brilliant mm. goal for Leeds United and I was thinking, ha come on, that's it. You always like to see Manchester United suffer. Um, you know, some things don't go away and then Manchester United just fucking 
exploded in a flurry, a frenzy of attacking pacey goal madness. And I was looking at it going, ah, this is... This is really quite depressing. And, and you know, it's 5-1, having just paraded Rafael Varane before the game. They bring on Jaden Sancho at 5-1 up. And I'm thinking, oh, how are we going to bridge this gap? They're 5-1 up and bringing on Jaden Sancho. And we were 2-0 down, bringing on Reese Nelson to try and make something happen. And that's not a criticism of Reese Nelson, but perhaps just a... Um, a demonstration of of where our squad is and and was for this first game. I mean, it's pretty stark, isn't it? Yeah, and quite an interesting parallel, I guess, because if you go back about three or four or five years, maybe, Reese Nelson and Jaden Sancho were being talked about in equal terms, really, as kind of two of the bright lights of English football. Yeah. And their careers have taken very different trajectories since then. Um, did Marcello Bielsa ever play for Manchester United, by the way? Because honestly, his teams, when they go there, seem to sort of roll over like they're managed by Steve Bruce. It's quite incredible. <laughs> uh, I don't know what's going on. I, I mean, obviously, it's the open approach just leads them being pulled apart. But yeah, uh, yeah no fun for any Arsenal fan. Not at all. So look, let's go back to Friday then. We're going to have to relive this. So everybody mm-hmm. strap yourselves in and get ready. Uh, well, let's start around lunchtime, shall yeah. we? With uh, David Ornstein's tweet about the two players being out of the game. Well, that that's far from ideal, isn't it? When you're two senior strikers, whatever your opinion of those strikers is or how they're used or where they're used, you don't want to go into the opening game of the season without them, without the captain. It's, you know, it's a real, a real blow. I mean, what do you, um, how do you view their absences? Because as, as with everything these days, there appears to be uh, com- conspiracy theories attached all over the place. They're out through illness. It strikes me that given the world we live in right now, there's probably a fairly simple explanation as to why both of them might be ill. But mm. yeah, I mean, what's your... Especially when you see, I think, is it Chris Wheatley who maybe has reported, well, they may be in line to miss next week's game mm. as well. It doesn't take a great leap of the imagination to wonder why that might be. Um, obviously, illnesses and health are kind of private matters and so I don't think the club are likely to disclose that and certainly most publications I don't think will. Yeah, um, I mean interestingly I did go back and have a look and, and when Mohamed El Neni and Said Kalasinac both tested positive for COVID-19, it was reported mm. on the Arsenal website but both were on international duty at the time so I don't know if there was some difference in protocol or whatever it might be that, mm. that led them to report that like I understand that as well like health and uh, and what have you is a private matter but we heard that Mikel Arteta had um, COVID yeah, back true, in the day true. so I don't know if there's a difference or if if by not saying anything they're they're feeding into um, you know Without information, people put two and two together and sometimes come up with five. And I'm not saying that's the case here, but, you know, maybe clarity on the situation might have been useful. Yeah, I I have to say, I don't know what Arsenal's own kind of internal guidelines are at this point about what they will and won't disclose. I do know that there's nothing to suggest that the fact that they're ill is wrong you know there's nothing mm. I, I read some pretty sort of uh, scurrilous stuff about them going on strike and things like that on social media and I have to say I've heard absolutely nothing to that effect I think um, you know Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang we were told he was ill last season and there was a lot of uh, question marks over that mm. and it transpired he had malaria um, 
I think you know we can we can take at face value the fact that they sure. have been unwell, but but I think it's um, you know we talk about having to bring Reese Nelson on in the second half. I have to say up front that I don't really think you can talk about this game without talking about the absentees. I, I think it was a huge factor and to, to mention the two centre forwards a lot of fans afterwards were like well what difference would they have made and I understand that because we're not hot on either Pierre-Eric Aubameyang or Alexandre Lacazette particularly as a fan base right now but I do think that there is a big difference actually between fielding one of those and fielding a guy making his first Premier League start. Yeah, look, I, I don't disagree with that. And I, I don't even know that it's as much about how hot we are or not on either Lacazette or Aubameyang. I think some of it is to do with the way that we play and, and um, oh, you know sure, whether, yeah, whether well. that would be part of it. But I, I think there's an interesting aspect to this, which is, I, you know, I didn't see it and I, I didn't necessarily feel it either that, you know, you would think normally when you're missing a striker like Aubameyang and a striker like Lacazette, you know, whether you like him or not. And Eddie Nketiah as well. And Eddie Nketiah, of course, yeah, who who wasn't there. Like, normally, I think that would produce a bit more of a freak out. You know what I mean? And Mm. the sense I got from the way the news broke and people's reaction to the news was kind of like, oh, well, I mean, this could mean wow, we could get Balogun starting. We could see Martinelli starting. I think there was sort of, it's not like people were enthused by it, but it provided a bit more excitement about the game uh, on Friday night. Now, I think there's also Mm -hmm. another side of this is that one of the things that we do as a fan base, and I think all football fans do it to an extent, is when things aren't going well, you look to young players for the solution. They're the answer because, well, we have to give them a chance at some point. And they've never disappointed us because they haven't really had the chance to yet. You know what I mean? Mm. I think we project quite often onto young players either a, a talent level or a readiness that isn't necessarily the case. And I think mm-hmm. there was something to that, given what happened on Friday night. Like, uh, uh, Flo Balagoon is clearly a young player with a lot of potential, but I watched him get bashed around by a couple of Brentford central defenders who, you know, have obviously be, uh, been playing a, a, at senior level for a long time, and they just sort of battered him around, and, and it, it showed you that, like, this is a young guy who probably needs alone who probably needs to go and play regularly so he can deal with that kind of physical treatment you know when you're playing in the Premier League even if you're playing in the championship for a season you're going to get smashed around a bit and you learn this is part of your development as as a young player is how to cope with that kind of treatment because a couple of times he got smashed was looking around at the referee and the referee was like well welcome to the Premier League young man yeah I think you're right. I do think, you know, one of the complaints at the start of the season is sort of it all feels a bit familiar and maybe the absence of those two strikers, yeah. you know, was a, something against that. I made us think, oh, we might see something fresh. We might see something different. I think maybe in that, this sort of callow, inexperienced nature of some of the players we put out there gets a bit lost amidst our excitement. And I think Balogun had a tough night on what was kind of almost a cup tie, you know, a newly promoted team, first time they got fans in their Mm. stadium, they were really up for it. The atmosphere was amazing. And it was a difficult, I'm going to say, atmosphere for some of those younger players, I imagine. Um, 
would I have expected more from some of the more experienced ones? Absolutely. But um, yeah, so, so with that in mind, the other thing to say is, I guess there were preparations, right? I guess Arteta was planning on a, a game plan which may or may not have worked, but that would have involved mm. certainly one of Aubameyang or Lacazette um, on Friday afternoon. That goes out the window. So I, I think that um, I'm not going to say the writing was on the wall, but certainly when that news came out, as much as I was excited by the prospect of seeing something new, I was also concerned. I was already concerned, to be honest, in the week, but that was another thing that made me think, oh, this could be a difficult night. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's fair. I was trying to talk myself into being optimistic about our chances of getting a result. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I could see we're all looking at the fixture list, aren't we? And yeah. thinking, oh, you know, that doesn't get Uh-oh. easier. No, but I mean, it felt like this was the kind of game where maybe we could have put down a bit of a marker as well. You know, I, I get everything that you're saying about Brentford. The atmosphere was amazing. Their fans had a wonderful night. I mean, watching the Sky Sports guys cavorting and singing, getting involved <laughs> with the crowd. I mean, I don't know what the fuck. I mean, you're 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 pundits, guys, not fucking cheerleaders. It was a bit much to be honest, yeah. but that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Um, you know, it, They were very swept up, that's for sure. They were, they were. And look, maybe it's the emotion of fans being back in the stadium after a year and whatever out, that's fine. But I think some measure of uh, of balance or, or impartiality when you are, um, you know, professionally mm. broadcasting on a game would be a bit more welcome. But uh, look, for Brentford, what an occasion. Back in the Premier League, the fans are back, new stadium. But these were things that we knew we were going to have to deal with. These mm. were things that we should have been prepared for, whether you've got Aubameyang and Lacazette or not. And I think, you know, you made the point to me when we were chatting over the weekend, you know, Thomas Partey being out, Gabrielle being out, also a bit of a blow for us, but still not unexpected. Things that we knew we were going to have to deal with. And I I was concerned about the readiness of the players we have to play in a fixture of, of this intensity. You know, yeah. I think there's something, you know, we've had preseason. We have had a preseason to get ourselves ready for this. And I think too many guys were, were just, yeah, taken in or uh, or affected by the occasion a little bit. You know, I can think of uh, Bernd Leno as one. I think Callum Chambers didn't do himself a, a great deal of good mm. on the night. Pablo Marie, another one. Um, Xhaka was Xhaka. Yeah, Nicolas Pepe, a bit underwhelming, even though he did have probably our best chance uh, beyond the one that Emil Smith-Rowe com- uh, created for himself. But we just weren't up for it. I know there's no sort of tangible way of measuring up for itness, but I mean, we looked a bit, we looked a bit scared at times, a bit yeah. timid. And, and like, I think there was a couple of moments where, you know, Brentford, we had a goal kick, Brentford uh, put some men in our way and we bottled it. The very first one we went, no, we're having none of this. And I think that set the tone. <laughs> I genuinely think that set the tone. Like, this is, yeah, this is, it does. It does as well, doesn't it? Because, I mean, Arteta has said, how often has he said that he doesn't want his goalkeeper kicking it long? How much work do they do on the training ground, you know, to, to, to prepare for a team which is going to press them high? Isn't the whole point of playing out from the back that if you can beat the press, you then have all this space to, to work with and attack into? And if mm. you're not going, Going to do that very fundamental thing that's apparently at the core of your footballing philosophy early on you just sort of fudge your game plan 
I mean, theoretically, Brentford's very aggressive press, as you're suggesting, should play into Arsenal hands. You know, yeah. if you surpass it, you've taken four or five players out the game straight away. I mean, you know, I, I, this isn't a Brentford podcast, but credit to Brentford. They play in a very aggressive fashion. You know, they really do pressure high up the pitch. And what they do on set pieces is kind of kamikaze craziness in a way you know 10 players up in the opponent's final third sometimes but you know they take a risk and it paid off for them in a big way in this game and Arsenal do feel a little risk averse I think physically we were second best on the day in a lot of respects yeah um I kind of thought the first opening period was sort of relatively even but once Brentford took the lead Mm. You know, I never had any great conviction that Arsenal would come back into it. I mean, before we get to that, you know, given the absentees, did you have any complaints about the starting lineup? Um, I don't know. I mean, look, he didn't pick El Nenny, which is good. I think we all want to see him do uh, something different with the team. And I think mm. uh, uh, Lokonga uh, or Sambi, I don't know which one we call him. He's got Sambi on the back of his shirt. But um, I thought he was promising. Thought he was mm-hmm. one of the bright spots uh, on the day. I thought Emil Smith Rowe, of course, was one of the bright spots. Kieran Tierney. I think there were some positives from an Arsenal perspective. It's difficult to really uh, go over those in any great detail. Kieran Tierney, of course, you know, uh, really effective. Even if um, that seemed to be our only real plan, uh, the Smith Rowe turn and run in the second half uh, was was superb. But it felt a bit like the only way anything was going to happen for us was something like that because this pre uh what's the word i'm looking for here predetermined pattern play that we have once the opposition are aware of that and can work it out and i've no doubt whatsoever that that brentford's uh analysts and coaching staff had a very good idea of how we were going to play whether we had Aubameyang up front or Lacazette up front or, or what have you you know it becomes relatively easy to um, to negate a team's attacking potential when you're pretty much aware of what they're going to do at all times. And it's, it's weird, isn't it? But because there was this stat afterwards saying that we had 22 attempts on goal, which is like the, wor- uh, the most we've ever had under Mikel Arteta mm-hmm. in a Premier League game. And I'm looking at it going, well, okay, that's, that's true, obviously, because, you know, the stats are just facts. But it's one of those, a bit like when people tell you we had the third best defensive record in, in the Premier League last season. It's true, but you're not quite sure how. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, fortunately, we do have a metric which kind of demonstrates that these days in XG in terms of what those mm. shots actually add up to. And I think Premier League games increasingly, well, maybe it's always been the case, but, you know, you realise they are just decided by sharpness and decisiveness in the in the two penalty areas mm. and Brentford were better than us in that respect um, you know the, the margins are always fine in Premier League games pretty much and it's about what you do in those final 18 yards mm. and that's where they were superior I think Arteta picked the team most of us probably would have wanted to see picked given the absentees um, maybe some would have had Bellerin or somebody else at right back but aside from that I think that was I think, pretty much it I think I would have had Rob Holding in the team ahead of Pablo Murray. Right, yeah. yeah. Was he on the bench, Rob Holding? He was. He was on the bench. Um, mm. And I think as time goes on, I think the Pablo Murray transfer stands up to less and less scrutiny. You know, I think uh, the more we're seeing of him, the more he's basically just 
a backup central defender. Um, and that's all he should be at best for Arsenal. Mm. Arteta's very wedded to this idea of a left-footed centre-back, isn't he? I think that's why Marie's starting. Um, mm, but, yeah. but you know, he's played David Luiz there previously. Yeah, and you don't need a left-footed central defender there. You know, you can... Uh, and many teams do play with two right-footed central defenders. I don't yeah. want to have this discussion about the two left-footed central defenders again either. But, um, yeah, look, I, I don't think he is... You know, he came into this game off the back of a really iffy preseason, and I don't think he was particularly good in this game. Um, I thought he was the better of Arsenal's two centre-backs, I will say that, um, with a heavy heart. I think I thought Ben aerially, White had a really, he, really, really difficult night. He did... Um, but I did, there was a video doing the rounds, you know, I thought he really got battered by Ivan Tony in the air. Yeah. Uh, there was a video doing the rounds which shows, look, it was relatively 50-50 between them. I think Tony might have won uh, four out of seven aerial duels with Ben White. So it was three out of seven for, for Ben White. Um, but yeah, look, mm. he did have a, he did have a bit of a difficult night and, and Pablo Marie's strength is in the air. Uh, you know, he's a big guy, so that's where he should be able to put himself about a bit. But I just don't know as a footballer if he, like, he doesn't look comfortable when he's taking the ball off the goalkeeper. And some of that might be to do with the way the goalkeeper is giving him the ball. And I'm sure we'll talk about Bernd Leno in a minute. But, yeah, yeah. You know, to watch the two players 15 minutes into the game shouting at each other, screaming at each other because. You know, one didn't like the pass that another played to him. It's just like, guys, just shut the fuck up and get on with the game. You know, there's an uncertainty there, which I think transmits itself, not just to our players, but to the opposition as well. Um, you know, you you can see that and you know that yourself. If you play football and you can sense a weakness in a team, it's something that you, you try and exploit. And I think Brentford did that. Um, yeah, but I am that player that people try and exploit. <laughs> so I know all about that. Um, but, but yeah, just on why, I mean, mm. I think he'll go on to be a very good player for Arsenal and I don't have any issues with the signing. But I do think as debuts go, this was a really difficult one. I, I take your point about it being even with Tony, but Tony's, I don't know if he's even six foot. And, you know, Ben White's facing the play when those balls get launched 60 yards up towards him. Mm. You would want him to do better than he did in those situations. I think that's fair. I think that's fair, uh, and I think you're right. It's it was, clearly so an area he needs yeah, to improve. I would say it's a it's an it was an inauspicious debut for mm. for Ben White. But look, you know, maybe I'd rather a guy who came in and didn't like you know get get hyped to the max straight away like some defenders have, and and he'll prove himself over time like a slow yeah. grower, a song you hear that you're not quite sure of at first, and you grow to love it. So hopefully, it's a bit like I th- that. I think he will. You know, I think he's clearly a really good footballer. Um, but, you know, the, uh, Sky were very big on the whole, he plays in a three thing. Uh, mm. And I do think that was kind of interesting, but there was a question about that, so maybe we'll come back to that later. Yeah, maybe we will. Um, okay, let's talk about the goals. The first goal, um, Callum Chambers, not great defensively. No. I not not good at all. No, because it's funny as well. Like you know, there's the question of did the ball go out, and it's like, well, Chambers is trying to keep it in, so it's a bit rich for us to complain about it being out. Like he he was actively trying to keep the ball in play in that moment. Yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't think we can. You know, no, that's not having grievances about that. That is, and then the the, the the speed at which he gets out towards Sergio Canos, I think, is. Um, slow basically and 
you know, that player is always going to come inside onto their right foot mm. from that position and it feels a little bit too easy for my liking. What about the goalkeeper in, in that scenario? Do you have any sympathy for that? I mean, there's this, uh, you know, the old adage that you should never get beaten at your near post, which I think is unfair. Sometimes you can get beaten at your near post because a shot is too good, too powerful. You know, there are times, and I'm thinking of Manuel Almunia here, that, you know, where you, you would look at a goalkeeper being beaten at his, at his near post as, as dodgy, but maybe this one not quite in the, the most egregious uh, example of that. Yeah, I mean, you have that reflex, don't you, when it goes in the near post to look at the keeper. And I actually had a couple of texts of people who know a lot more about goalkeeping than me who said, well, you won't be happy with that. But I think that's a little harsh, actually. I think it's flashed in right at the near post. He's a little bit unsighted. I think it's a very, very good save if he keeps that out. What do you think? I think you're right. I think if he does keep that out, it is a, it's you know a, an amazing save. I think the issue for me is really how easy it was for Sergi Canos to to take the shot. You know, mm. the defending wasn't good enough. Um, Chambers wasn't out quick enough. He wasn't tight enough. He showed him onto his right foot. Just no. You know, the defending was was really poor. Um, I don't think it really feeds into the overall Leno narrative in any positive way though because I think he's a player about whom many people have growing doubts and I think Mm -hmm. that's quite reasonable Um, he looks like he looks a bit broken he does not look like the, the goalkeeper um, he used to be, and I'm not saying he was ever the best goalkeeper uh, around, but he was certainly a more confident goalkeeper, uh, a happier goalkeeper. His shot stopping, and he showed this in the game itself, in fairness, with a couple of good saves, mm-hmm. was always you know top notch, really. He, he's made some incredible saves for Arsenal, but I, I worry about where he is. Um, yeah, I just w- worry about his. Uh, I was. I don't want to like speculate on on his mentality. I just he doesn't look like he's happy, and I think when he's got the ball at his feet, I think his decision making is increasingly erratic. Um, yeah, and I wonder if that you know is feeding into some of the issues that we have uh, as a team as well. You know, going back to that yeah. exploiting the weakness thing. I, I, well, I had a bigger issue with Leno on the, the second goal, I've got to say. Um, but but I, I think I, I take your point about uh, the general issue. I, I kind of think um, we all know that it's not a settled position. You know, we all know that he's got one, what, two years left on his contract. Mm. There's no talks about an extension. Arsenal um, seemingly don't want to extend it. I, I don't think the player necessarily does either. They have spent the summer chasing another goalkeeper who clearly I think would be sort of a a potential heir to Leno. Um, There's no great sort of long-term commitment to the player and I'm not sure how healthy a situation that is. And I think if Arsenal do get another goalkeeper, which they have to do, if it's someone half-decent, I think there's every chance that they will be in the sticks before the end of the season to be honest oh sure 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 like if it's somebody with Premier League experience um, you know I think there's a very good chance that they come in and, and get the nod straight away to be honest really yeah well why why not because Leno's mm. form has been 
has been a worry for a little while. And it's not like he's gone away, come back at the start of a new season and hit the ground running. You know what I mean? It's not like he's wiped the slate clean, right? I'm determined to come back and and do it. Um, It it just feels like it's getting worse. I'm curious about what what you said about the second goal where you had yeah. an issue with Leno. Now, I'm I'm I think he is being fouled 100% being I actually fouled. agree with that. Yeah. But yeah. I also think it's weak. Mm. Uh and I think both things can be true. That's um, it. Yeah. But but I I think I also have an issue not just with Leno because I think he he, he has to be stronger there. He has to uh not get bullied. He has to let the referee or make the referee know that he's being fouled. Goalkeepers mm-hmm. are a protected species most of the time. So, you know, any slight uh, impedance on the goalkeeper usually means there's a foul given or the referee, you know, will reset and, and uh, you know, tell the guy, if you, if you keep doing that, it will be a free kick when this corner comes in or throw comes in or whatever it might be. I also think there's something um, to look at from the, the, the outfield players maybe not protecting their goalkeeper in a situation like that. Uh, you know, if they're seeing it happen, get between you, get between your goalkeeper and that man. You know, don't make it easy for the opposition to foul your goalkeeper. So I think Leno should have been stronger, but I also think there's a lack of lack of backup, uh, for want of a better word, from, from those around him. Yeah, what, what Brentford do is actually really clever because... When the guy's lining up to take the long throw, uh, and if you watch it back on the clip, anyone at home, you'll you'll see this. Leno is stood completely alone, mm. so that so Arsenal are sort of you know set up for the set piece, and Leno thinks I'm clear here, I've got a free run, and the Brentford number eighteen Janssen, mm. he trots in and stands on Leno as the guy is running up to take the throw. He walks. He doesn't even run. He walks from the edge of the box and just ghosts in to be on Leno the second the, the throw-in is taken. So it's perfectly timed because Arsenal think they're setting up for one thing mm. and Brentford flip it and do another. Right. They've always been very innovative with their set pieces. That That's a nice piece of smart play. So I, I'm a little bit forgiving of other Arsenal players simply because until the ball was in the air, this wasn't really... Ha- it's not like they were right, wrestling right, right. for yeah, like yeah, yeah. 30 seconds. However... He is fouled, yes. But like you say, goalies get away with all kinds of shit in the penalty box, you know? Mm. It's very, very unlikely that if Leno gives a bit back, a penalty will be given. And to be honest, if Leno falls on the floor, it's probably a free kick. Yeah, I, I just felt it was kind of sort of uh, a great example of one of the flaws in Leno's game. And I'm a big... Some, a proponent of Leno, someone who's sort of really stood up for him at times and think he's a good goalkeeper, but he does s- stay stuck on his line in these situations. Mm. He's not very comfortable coming to collect the ball, coming to punch it, coming to catch it in these scenarios. And I think that's one of the reasons that the coaching staff aren't as enamoured with him as they might be. And, mm. and I do wonder what, yeah, I mean, I guess any talks to bring in another goalkeeper, you know, are all the more urgent, I think, given this performance. I just thought it was sort of the sign of a goalkeeper who, like you say, maybe his confidence is is really waning right now. Yeah. Yeah, and look, it just highlights, I think, why we need another goalkeeper. And even, uh, even if Leno 
we're playing well, we still need that other goalkeeper. I think it's possible mm. for a player, not necessarily to become complacent, but if you don't have any pressure on your position, if you know you're going to play week in, week out, and it doesn't really matter what you do, like at the moment, that's the situation for Leno. He knows he can yeah. chuck one in week after week and they're just not going to play Runison. They're not well, going to play in the squad, of course. No, the other no, day no. As I mean, well. it was Carl Hine, wasn't it? Was on the on the bench. Yeah. So, you know, I think the gap is is sort of too big unless your hand is completely and utterly forced by by Leno being absent. So that's not mm. a healthy situation for for the player. It's not a healthy situation for the club, and hopefully that's a that's one that they get sorted um, sooner rather than it, later. Yeah. It was interesting as well, you know, David Raya had a, a decent game at the other end of the pitch. But I find it funny, I mean, I understand everyone's frustrated with the club, but um, there is a tendency at the moment to use anything as a stick to beat them with. You know, I saw a lot of fans being like, why didn't we get Raya? But 12 months ago, they would have been saying, don't get Raya, he's recommended by the same coach who bought Runison. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I do think there is a lot of that revisionism going on. So it's important to... Um, try and keep a level head despite despite all the issues right so we were 2-0 down uh, Bakayo Saka yeah. came on which was good he looked positive I think he yeah. he interacted quite well with uh, Kieran Tierney um, it was it was quite something wasn't it to to see how little Martinelli and Tierney actually connected during this game mm. I think they had what one pass between them or something like that um you know, and I, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, what do you put that down to? Do you think? Um, do you think? I mean, I thought watching that first half, Martinelli was very, very central, and I just wondered if he might be able to offer Tierney a bit more support. But I had to assume that, given how structured everything is under Mikel Arteta, that was the instruction from him. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense if you think about the way. I know he's a very different player, but Emil Smith-Rowe was asked to play on the mm. left-hand side last season, you know, to come in field and create that space for Tierney on the overlap. But it didn't work brilliantly. I mean, I thought Saka was another big miss from the starting eleven. I thought he improved us when he came on, mm. as you'd expect. He looked good. Uh, he obviously needs to start the next game. Um, yeah, I mean, Martinelli, it's a tricky one. He sort of came straight back in, didn't he, after the Olympics and didn't have his best game by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, I would if Saka had been fit to start, I would have been very tempted by going with Martinelli as the centre forward in this game. Yeah. Um, but clearly, I mean, we can only assume they didn't feel that was right for Saka, and I guess that forced their hand. Yeah. Yeah. Look. Uh, yeah. If Saka starts and gets an injury, everyone's gone crazy because we didn't give him enough rest yeah. after a busy summer. You know, there are situations where I think it's impossible to win <laughs> one way or the other. I mean, you win this game against Brentford, and this is not an issue anyway. Um, but but that's uh, that's a bigger thing. Um, there wasn't a great deal on the bench, though, was there? When it came to to scoring goals, um, we didn't have another striker. Uh, I think the changes that we made was Saka on for Balagoon, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And then Reese Nelson comes on, and like I said, it's you know, it's not a criticism or or anything like that of Reese Nelson, but this this is a player whose last Premier League start was in July last year. Um, he barely played a second mm-hmm. in Premier League terms last year, and now. We're in a situation, and I accept that there are injuries to Nketiah and Aubameyang and Lacazette's absences were not planned. 
but you know that's it just didn't feel like um yeah it didn't feel like good squad planning for that to be the kind of change that we had to make and i'm curious also for your thoughts on the last substitution nuno tavares came on the guy that we bought as backup for kieran tierney at left back he came on at right back ahead of hector bellerin who was on the bench cedric who was on the bench ainsley maitland niles who was on the bench at that point, it felt a bit like a bit of a Hail Mary sub anyway, didn't it? Just like throw mm-hmm. the new guy on and see what he can do. And maybe he can bring something that I know these other guys can't. But do you think there's a message in there somewhere? Does it say anything to you about the other options at right back? Is Mikel Arteta sending a message upstairs, as can often be the case with the way that managers use their squads and use their players, to send a message saying, look... I've started a guy at right back who was poor, isn't really a right back, and you know isn't a, isn't really a good fit to play right back for thirty eight games uh, in a Premier League season for Arsenal. I've got three alternatives on the bench, all very experienced. In fairness, Bellerin hundreds of games, Maitland Niles hundred and fifty odd professional games, Cedric hundreds of games for club and country. And I'm going to bring on a left back ahead of all of them. That felt there's something to that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit wary of that only because there's still 10 minutes of the game at that point and you're still trying to get something. Do you know what I mean? It's not just an exhibition at that stage. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you know, rather than just directly sending a message, I think it, it tells us more about his feelings about the other options. That's for sure. Mm. You know, and we kind of know that anyway. He's not... I mean, he was very reticent to use Cedric at all in the second half of last season. Um, Bellerin wants to leave the club. Um, the club wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that, but only if they felt they had an adequate replacement. Um, and Maitland-Niles, mm. I mean, just feels like he's on borrowed time, right, at this point. So, yes, I, I, it was striking to have three right-backs available and go for a left-back was... Very unusual. I actually thought Tavares did pretty well. Yeah, I thought, I thought so he justified too, yeah. his selection. Yeah. Um, he was full of enthusiasm, certainly, and, and physicality. He's really clearly a, a strong boy, um, and I liked him. But and he's more two-footed than I would have imagined. More two-footed than most left backs. But uh, yes, that was curious. And I do think if you look at right back, you know, Chambers didn't cover himself in any glory on the night. I, I have thought for some time it's probably one that Arsenal won't get to, but I would love them to. I really think it would be good if they yeah. can. We had a question. I might as well just do it now because we're we're Go sort on. of in that ballpark and it came on the Discord and I'm just going to look for it here. It comes from... Uh, actually, there's a couple of them. That One from Woody on the Discord. He says, Has the Brentford game made you rethink our recruitment priorities? And Philip Ibrahim Ibrahim, uh, says, is right back now a priority in the transfer market? Is having five much worse than having four, particularly if the fifth is actually good? Um, 
it depends how you feel about what happened last season. I mean, Mikel Arteta alluded to this in his press conference on Friday about the balance of the squad being sort of unhealthy, I think might have been the word he used last season. And I do think there is a desperation, not desperation, but a real um, keenness to avoid what happened last year with having paying players that you can't even register for use. I, I really think they don't want that. Um, is, is having a fifth right back worse? Like, would having a good right back be better than having four right backs just arsing around for a season? Yeah, yeah, but I think you've I got know to think you about mean. the financial yeah, dimension yeah, 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 to yeah, yeah, it yeah, yeah. as well. I know, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Look, all of this is dependent on on being able to move players on, and as we have seen so far in this window, with what basically two weeks left, it is a major, major problem for Arsenal. Not just for Arsenal, in fairness, but it feels particularly acute for us, doesn't it? And it's hard to know um, what where the line is between this being like a market problem and an Arsenal not being very good at selling players problem. Well, fortunately for Arsenal, yeah, it's difficult to be exactly sure. I suppose what you could say is it's a problem that predates the pandemic for Arsenal. Um, and But, you know, a lot of the staff have changed in that period of time, but Arsenal have never been particularly great at this. But it is a huge problem. It is the kind of dam preventing mm. uh, Arsenal's, the, the cha- all the change we want to see happening. Um, and right back is the clearest, maybe the most obvious example, simply because we've got so many of them. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I'm dubious about our chances of getting any of them out, to be honest. Um, Bellerin is the one who you'd think would be most desirable to other clubs. But there's not been a, a realistic bidder coming close to matching the Oscar price yet. Are we are we in the area now where it's more and more likely that a load of loan deals will happen? Is it, I think so. Is it better for loan deals? Like people will go, oh, yeah, Bellerin goes, oh, we're only sending him on loan and they might have an option to buy him. People might go crazy about that. But is that not better? at least if you're going to make room in the squad for another player, perhaps another arrival, um, you know, is, is, is it not better just to make the space, even if you are in some respects kicking the can down the road a little bit? Uh, yes, I think it is. And I think, unfortunately, that unfortunately, I think that is what will happen. I think we'll see a flurry of loan deals, not just from Arsenal, but from lots of other clubs. People just sort of shifting other people's, shifting players' wages onto other people, basically. Mm. Um, and with the right-back situation, to be honest, even four is too many to carry through a season, yeah. right? So that's got to happen um, somewhere along the line. And you'd think... I've always thought Bellerin and Maitland-Niles were the likeliest ones to go, and I still think they're probably the two that we might be able to get out. Mm. So then we'd have to buy a right back, would we? Or not? Well, we wouldn't or have to. We wouldn't have strictly. to, but like... Uh, I'd like us to, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, conversations around Arsenal this week is probably the first time I've heard the letters FFP floated. Um and I have to be honest, I don't know the ins and outs of the finances, but I think there is 
there is a concern at Arsenal. I don't think they can just spend completely freely without bringing some money in. And they don't think they can keep adding salaries to their books without shedding some. Mm. Well, yeah, of course, uh, that makes sense. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. Well, is there anything else you want to do in part one? Anything else you want to talk about from the, the Brentford game uh, in particular, beyond it being a hugely disappointing, underwhelming start to uh, the new season? No, yeah, I don't think so, really. Um, don't think there's any issues we've we've failed to cover. No, I mean, I thought you know, if you're looking for some positives, I thought Smith Rowe was good. I thought um, Lukonga looked pretty decent, to be honest, in a Premier League debut. Um, and I thought Tierney was good. Saka looked good when he came on too, but it kind of ends there for me. Um, yeah, and no great surprises, I guess, in in the identity of some of those players. No, that's true. I mean, if you were going to, before the game, talk about who you think was going to make a positive contribution, it would be those guys. Um, you know, maybe Martinelli and Balagoon didn't quite take the chances that we had hoped or, or the way that we would have hoped, but I think there are also mitigating factors in, in that respect. Um, and I'm sure uh, the way we play is going to come up in the second half of the show when we do some questions. So let's take a break right here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Um, would you like to go first? Will I go first? How do you want to do it? New season? Uh, you- oh, let's have this one. I'll go first. Okay. Because it's... Uh- a different take from Joe, Captain Joseph, who says, despite the result and the general lack of excitement against Brentford, are we overreacting? We played a team with fans in their brand new ground for the first time on the historic return to the top flight without three strikers, our best midfielder and our left-sided centre-back. Are we overreacting? There's great replies. One guy just replies saying, this... And then another one says, people like you are the problem with Arsenal. The club has been on a downward spiral for a long time and you always have one excuse or another for mediocrity. <laughs> well, I don't know about overreacting. I think what we're, what we're reacting to is stuff that we feared. Do you know what I mean? It reminds me very much of that Aston Villa game that we talked about, the 2013 one, you know, where yeah. 
I think at that point we'd only signed Matthew Flamini That's on a free transfer. That's um, it. In fairness, we've spent the best part of £100 million in this window <laughs> on various different players. Or, um, but uh, there was that sort of just outpouring mm. of anger and frustration that I think was about much more than just that one game. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if I would call it an overreaction. I think Actually, it's, I, I, might, I might call it an overreaction. <laughs> I might call it an overreaction. I th- look, there's a logical part of your head which says it's just the first game of the season. But, you know, look, I'm not making any excuses for it. You know, the logical part is it's the first game of the season. It was terrible. We lost. That's not good. But there's a lot yeah. of time to put things right, etc., etc. You know, I get that. At the same time, though, I can't shake the nagging feeling that that this performance and this defeat is symptomatic of a wider malaise. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's difficult mm-hmm. for me to, to sort of look at this thing in isolation because I don't think it exists in isolation. It's the first game of the season, but it's not the first game that Mikel Arteta has ever been in charge of. You know, if nope. you if you have concerns about the way that we play, you can't just say, well, it's the first game of the season. But, you know, we've got more to go on than just this game. You can write off preseason. I think that's fair enough. It's okay to sort of say it's just preseason and what have you. Um, but, I, yeah, look, there's always going to be an element where people overreact. There's always mm. going to be a point of view which is informed by the worst-case scenario outlook. I get that. Mm. You know, it's easy Mm. when, if you have concerns and you see Arsenal play like that against Brentford, I mean, it's not going to do anything other than confirm to you anyway what you think you know or what you know or what you suspect or fear or what have you. You know what I mean? So Mm. I don't think it's an overreaction per se. I think there's maybe a bit more going on behind the scenes than than we know. I'm not 100% sure on that. But nothing about what we did or how we were prepared for a new season was in any way encouraging. So if people want to vent and if people want to let off some steam, I think that's fair. To be honest, I don't. Oh, yeah. think, I don't it's think it's a, fair. I, do, I mean, look, there's you can go you can go too far one way or too far the other way. Like people are saying, there's nothing to worry about. Are you know that that's wrong? And people are saying everything is everything is shit. Um, you know, they may have a bit more truth on their side, but you know, there are people who go too far on both sides. Uh, but you know, there wasn't a great deal to. You know, beyond the couple of positives that we mentioned in almost throwaway style towards the end of that first half, and, and we know what they are. You know, I, I I was disappointed by the way we we started the season, both in terms of personnel and in terms of our readiness and our approach. You know, mm-hmm. we don't look we don't look like a, a team that's fully fit, fully sharp. We didn't really compete physically. Um, we were scared by their intensity, and that's not good. Those things are not good. So I, I, I understand if someone wants to say, well, that's the first game. Um, we, there are some issues. I think, you know, if we go into that game with Aubameyang, if we go into that game with Partey, if we go into that game with Gabriel, 
I, I think we're stronger and I think we're probably better and I think it's a more competitive game. So that's not an unreasonable position to take. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I think... I can understand why Arsenal lost this game. I really can because of the absentees, because of the way Brentford play. I think better teams than us will get beat at Brentford, actually. Not all of them, but some. Um, But I think it was just sort of confirmed. It was confirmation of many fans' worst fears, I suppose. Um, And so that leads to the outpouring. Where I do think we have to be careful and it's it's tricky because I mainly take the temperature of this stuff through social media and that is not uh, the best indicator but like last night for example when the news came out that Tammy Abraham was going to be um, going for a medical with Roma mm. uh, and I put out a tweet I just said you know this is something I previously reported Arsenal really liked Tammy Abraham someone they would have liked to bid for but they've not been able to sell the strikers therefore it won't happen and there was such an outpouring of like Edu must be sacked. How has he not managed to sell Lacazette? You know, this is a disgrace. But when I reported that Arsenal were interested in Tammy Abraham a couple of weeks ago, the reaction was, well, we don't want him. And I do feel a bit like the David Raya thing. There's this sort of curious thing where it's like the atmosphere is so negative that things get twisted to be negative about the club. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. That there is, you can't win either way. Um, but I, I think everything feeds into the fears and concerns that, that people have. You know, like we were saying in the first half, is 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 Arsenal not selling players, a, you know, more of a market issue or just the fact that Arsenal are not good at selling players? Or mm. Arsenal are actually really good at accumulating players that are very difficult to sell? Uh, I think you're I think right. It, uh, yeah, exactly. I think you're, it's much more that. Yeah, you're right to say that this is not necessarily a new thing because, you know, how many times did Nicholas Bentner go out on loan? And we couldn't, we yeah. literally could not sell him. Danielson, somebody who went on loan for, what, two or three years. Um, you know, these are issues that we have had. Joel Campbell, that kind of thing. These are issues that we have had down the years that... Um, yeah, we don't seem to be getting any better at managing. And I, I think it all ties into perhaps a, a better recruitment strategy and, you know, trying to shape the squad in a certain way. So, like, you know, even if everyone got sacked tomorrow, you've more or less sort of future-proofed elements of your squad by bringing in younger players. You know what I mean? Mm. That there's mm. a, there's more rigor there for you know, a, a new manager or a new technical director or a new head of football to work with in the future, you know? So that's yeah. that's part of it. Um, but I, I can't help it, but it's my nature to, to look at the business, for example, that we have done in this window and mm. say, well, we are doing that. We are getting better. Yeah. Um, and to sort of see an upward trajectory rather than just a downward one. I appreciate, you know, things are bad and they may get worse, but the wisdom of the decisions seems to be slightly improved. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, even as far as selling Joe Willett, for example, some would say that's an example. Some will say that's a positive example of things we might not have done previously. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, there are, uh, if you want to look for those as, as positive signs, I think they are positive signs. So, um, you know, maybe in four years we're sitting here talking about, God, we can't sell 
uh, Nuno Tavares after we gave him a contract extension, blah, blah, blah. But, you know. Maybe. 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 Who knows? But that's uh, that's also worse uh, case scenario uh, thinking. Uh, here's a question from James B., who's at James AFTV on Twitter. He says, hi, guys. Arteta once said that he soon expects everything to go bang for Arsenal. Now, whether that's an explosion or an implosion, we'll have to wait and see. But he says, does an upgrade in player quality suddenly make it all come together? I'm starting to think that even with a world-class number 10 and striker, we'd look toothless in attack. More eyes on Mikel. Mm. What's the question? Sorry, does, the, does an upgrade in player quality make things go bang? Yeah, does that... What, 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 will, what will it take to make it go bang is it just an issue of player quality or is it you know in part due to the way that the manager is is setting up his team i'll tell you my concern about Mikel Arteta's tactics my concern is they require really excellent players like i think if he was coaching that manchester manchester city squad or if he was coaching maybe the chelsea squad or maybe the liverpool squad i i suspect he'd be able to get a tune out of them because what he's asking for example of his defenders in the way they play out or his strikers in the way they link the play i think is very difficult and so is there an upgrade in player quality that would make it go bang Yes. Is that upgrade in player quality realistic, given our current position, given the market, given how much it would require us to do? Possibly not. And so, you know, when you're not a very good team, and I would argue we're not a very good team, you have to maximise the individual qualities of one player or, or several players. So to take a really extreme example... Crystal Palace, right? <laughs> they weren't very good for the last few years, but they saw what they had in Wilfred Zaha and they tactically accommodated it in a way that emphasised his strong points. I kind of think that Arsenal, we're, we're a sort of good mid-table team at the moment. We might not like that fact, but we are. And so we need to look at our players who are really effective, really dangerous and construct a team that maximises what they do rather than trying to impose a broader identity, I don't think we have the general squad strength to successfully achieve. Right. That's... That, that's my opinion. Okay. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because I would say that we do have some, some high-quality players. Mm-hmm. That if you're telling me, you know... Well, you're not telling me, but, you know, we have in attack, we've got Smith-Rowe, we've got an elite goal scorer in Pierre-Enrico Aubameyang, and we're not necessarily using him in a way which maximizes his strength because we're, we're attempting to put in place this broader structure. You know, um, Lacazette can score goals. Saka is fantastic. Nicolas Pepe, a really talented player who we've seen, um, you know, contribute with end product, but in terms of his overall influence, hasn't necessarily been consistent. Um, yeah, I mean, I think even if you take that, what you said about Mikel Arteta there, that the way he wants his team to play might work better with better players, I think that could be true. 
But and it's true of every coach, to I, be fair. I think so. That's what I was going to say. And I also think that if, after, what, now two years, this is, we're into his third season. I know his first season was only a half season, but he had last season. We're now into his third season as a coach. If you're not getting what you should be getting from the players you have with the approach that you're taking, maybe you need to rethink the approach to some extent. And look, sample size is really small from this season, of course. We've only played one game, and we played it without our you know, two main strikers, and we played it without our most influential midfield player. So I have yeah. some sympathy in that regard. We still created 22 chances, and I put those in, in inverted commas. So there were 22 attempts on goal rather than 22 chances. That makes it sound much, much better than it was. You know, I take all that into account. I just feel like there is there's something to, 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 what's the word? rigid about what he is looking for from his players. Here's an example. You know the chance that Pepe had late in the game? I can't remember it. It was a a move, got it down the left. I think it was Tierney or it could have been Saka that cut it back. Pepe arrived in the box in that position that he has done at times, took took a low shot, and caught it really well, first-time shot. It was a good save. It was David a really Ryan. good save from David Raya. That is a really um, impressive passage of play. If that ball goes in the back of the net, people are saying, look at that, kind, look at that football, that's brilliant. We mm. moved it quickly, we got it forward, we cut it back, there's a guy arriving in the box, and the finish was fantastic. You mm. can find pleasure in the precision but outside Mm -hmm. of that precision there isn't anywhere near enough to cause the opposition any kind of uh, stress it's like Mm. it's like when you're playing um, a boss in a video game Mm. that after a while you recognize the moves that they have and you you, right. you go yeah, accordingly. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like the first he stomps, few times. He stomps, he swings his weapon. And then you step back, and then when he's turned around. And that's around, when you can hit him. Bang. Yeah. And that's what we're kind of like, that once you work out those patterns, there isn't much else. And that's why something like the Emil Smith-Rowe chance in, in midfield, where he took the ball on the turn, like just dragged it beyond a couple of defenders, drove towards goal, took a shot, keeper made a save, it wasn't the strongest shot, but those kind of things really stand out because they're so rare. But we're so reliant on on somebody like Smith-Rowe or Saka, like at uh, points last season, the, the, the tactic in a game that wasn't going well was, well, give it to Saka over on the right-hand side and see what he can do, you know? Mm. So there isn't, there isn't enough variety, there isn't enough... Um, freedom of expression, I think, in the way that the players play. And I think that there maybe needs to be more balance in that because it's good to have those patterns because when you work them out, it's like the automatisms, isn't it? You know where the guy's going to be. Move the ball, move yourself, get into the spaces. And if it comes off, you're you're causing them problems. But outside of that, there's just I, I just feel like it's far too rigid. Um, and I think that is that is in some ways a, a a hindrance 
to us scoring the kind the the, the number of goals that we are going to need to score. Yeah, I, so I, I don't know if you know well if you intend this, but I think we're actually agreeing in that. I think to put it really basically, my current opinion on this, and it, it will change, I'm sure, because moods do and opinions do, is that Mikel Arteta would like Arsenal to play Manchester City football, but that Manchester City buy the best players in the world to make them able to do that. And that actually that rigidity requires such high levels of individual quality. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne is a beautiful football player, but he's like the Terminator or something. He's like an incredible football robot in my eyes Mm. in that he, you know, he fits the structure. He does everything you would want of him tactically and he executes it to perfection. And I just think Arsenal's players are just a a, a lowered level of quality. I don't know if we've got some really good players, but I just think they are. So I think you're right. Like, you have to look at what you've got in the squad and say, how do you maximise that? Like, And I think the less, the overall quality of the team, the more important it is you emphasise the individuals you do have who are really brilliant. Yeah. And I think Arteta's not really sort of admitted that to himself at this stage. I actually think the closest he came to him in that is when he was playing the 3-4-3 or whatever it was, you know, when we won the FA Cup, where it was very kind of pragmatic in some respects, but there was really a clear plan to kind of, okay, well, we're going to use these guys we've got on wing back or we're going to release Aubameyang in this fashion, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, even if you don't like Aubameyang on the left, you have to admit that it did, um, in many respects, allow him to have a really big impact on on important games like maybe yeah, he didn't exactly. get into enough goal scoring positions and i you know i i don't i'm not saying i'm i want to see obama young on the left i really don't um i think it's a waste but in that system it put him in positions where like do you remember the there were a couple of videos doing the rounds it might have been between the the Man City semi-final and the final in Chelsea where there was this almost identical movement when Maitland-Niles, I think, was playing at left-back and Mm. we were going forward. Maitland-Niles made an inside run. Tierney made a run on the outside, I think it was. I can't remember the exact details. And there's space for Aubameyang to cut inside on his right foot and shoot and score a goal or have a chance or whatever it was. And the two videos were sort of mirrored together. And it was basically identical the movement and the position of the players and the way they were running uh you know so i think that was maybe a system which which got the best out of our best player or certainly allowed him to score two goals in a semi-final against man city two goals in a final against chelsea and and win us the cup but i mean is it not a fool's errand to try and play in a way i mean as much as you might desire it as you think it is the right way to play uh, if it's, you know, even if it's aspirational, if it's ambitious, is it not a fool's errand to keep trying to do something that clearly you don't have the players to do? Yeah, and and, and I don't think whatever happens this summer is going to sufficiently change that. You know, we're not going to be a different enough team to what we were last season. And what I would say is, is also this, watch Match of the Day. There were a lot of goals in the Premier League this weekend. Yesterday, certainly on Saturday. Hopefully there'll be more today and Man City will put them all past Spurs. Mm. But watch those goals yesterday and see how many come from perfectly constructed, intricate moves with triangles down the flanks. 
Not that many. <laughs> plenty are off set pieces. Plenty are off balls that are chucked in the box and someone kicks it and it goes off somebody's ass. And like, you know, or someone just lobs a ball forward and a guy makes a run that breaks the pattern, breaks the shape. Chaos factor. Yeah. Is a huge element in any goal, you know? And I just think Arsenal aren't throwing enough dice, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, which, you know, look, I don't want to talk about Joe Willock in that aspect, but I think... Yeah, no, I know, mean... That's, that's, that's why, what he is. Yeah. He's a big cup of dice. Yeah, he is. He is. Um, you might roll some sixes with him. You never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, is it your question or my question? Uh, I'll ask this. I think it's okay. interesting. Aaron Stewart, do you think both the fee and the lack of reported bids from other teams for Ben White has led to more difficult negotiations for other targets? Um... No, I don't know why they would be related. Do you? Do you, I, I think, don't really I think, understand. I think it has. I, well, I think there was other interest in Ben White, but not as serious. But I do think. I mean, Arsenal. It was reported, and it's, I believe it's true. Bid five times for Ben White mm. before ending at the fifty million pound figure. And I do slightly worry that if you're bidding for a player, like Ramsdale's an example. Arsenal made uh, two written offers and one verbal are Sheffield United not sort of within their rights to think well, oh yeah they went times for the other guy they went all the way yeah we'll just hold on until yeah okay fair enough okay I see and also like Ben White 50 million we all know it's a big number don't we like yeah. even if we think he's a really good player I do slightly worry that um you know, I'm not going to say we've made life hard for ourselves, but any selling club is going to look at that number and look at the number of times Arsenal came back and think, all right, well, we might as well sort of try and squeeze them. Do you yeah. know what I mean? That, yeah. that, that's the, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I, it's a potential concern. I mean, the other way you could look at it is you could say, well, everyone knows we've spent our money on Ben White, so mm. they shouldn't be trying to squeeze us for any. <laughs> yeah, maybe that. I suppose the other thing is that you're not always going to be buying the Ben White from no. another team. And Brighton, you know, held on to him and held on for that price because, you know, they really, really rated him. Uh, he was a player. And centre forwards and centre backs yeah, cost a lot of money. They would have liked to keep him. You know, the, the, this is not a player that they wanted necessarily to sell, but when the money becomes too big, you've got no choice one way or the other. And they decided that 50 million was that. And I don't think every player, like even, you know, you look at someone like uh, Tavares, he was sort of on mm. the outs at Benfica a little bit. It didn't even quite Odegaard, work out there. maybe, you know, yeah. he's left out of the squad at the weekend. Maybe it won't be as difficult a negotiation. Yeah, I mean, um, that's that's an interesting situation. I, I'm I'm... Pretty confident that that one is going to be done. You know, he's left yeah. out of the squad completely for Real Madrid's first game against Alaves. Uh, look, you can never say, uh, as we both know with with experience, you can never say with any hundred percent certainty, anyway, that a deal is going to happen. But if I had a hundred pounds right now mm -hmm. to live on during the week. I would bet 99 of those pounds that Odegaard will sign for Arsenal. Now, that only leaves right. me a pound, and yeah. maybe I can get a, 
a loaf of bread. No, you probably can't even get a loaf of bread. Tin of beans, maybe. I don't know. I'll have to go hungry for the week if it doesn't happen. But that would be my own fault. I feel pretty confident that this one is going to happen. Are you ready for Mr. Arsenic TM to tweet out Andrew <laughs> Mangan prepared to go hungry? Uh, Arse he is blog, so confident. Arsblog yeah. to eat a can of beans. Arsblog to feed off one can of beans forever for the rest of the week <laughs> because he is so confident about Odegaard Chancellor. Yeah, I just feel confident that this one is, is going to happen. So I, I And look, we talked about... Um, you know, being more attack, uh, being more attacking, being more creative, and I do think, as we've just discussed, I think there are fundamental issues with the with the the approach with the system, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are uh, the, the manager needs to address that side of things, but I also think good personnel can make some of the difference as well. And I think Odegaard yeah. is, a, is, a, is a really good player. I know some people are a bit cold on him and they would have preferred Madison or whatever it is, but I I like the player. I think he's got a good eye for a pass. I think he he gives us a bit more in the final third when it comes to... I think Smith-Rowe, what he gives us is, is quick passing and movement. I think what Odegaard can give us is, is a bit more incision or incisiveness um, yeah. with, with the final pass. So I'm... I'm I'm happy if we get this one done because again going back to what we said uh, a bit earlier that even if it all fucking falls apart for Arteta even if you know it goes wrong and he gets sacked and a new manager comes in I think Odegaard is basically a future proof signing he's not a signing that that another manager is going to come in and say well look at this 32 year old at the end of his career he's he's 22 He's been at Real Madrid for a few years. It hasn't quite gone the way he wanted. I think this is a player with a lot to prove. I also think that if people's opinion of Arsenal right now is is that it's not great, it's not, you know the team isn't good, we're not playing particularly good football, I don't know how snobby we can be about the kind of player that we can bring in. Like, no, realistically, no, no. who out there, if they're much, much better than Martin Odegaard is going to want to sign for Arsenal. No, nobody. Nobody's coming mm-hmm. to us at the moment without European football. And I think what, what we get with Odegaard is a, is a player of, of potential at the right age with something to prove. He's been at a big club where it hasn't quite worked out for him. And I think the ingredients are there for that to be a kind of successful Arsenal signing. Let me just make something very, very clear when I say this. I am not comparing him in any way to uh, the likes of Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, Mark Overmars, players like that. But these are players whose, you know, this is a story that's been written at Arsenal before in terms of a good young player has gone somewhere, hasn't worked out, and they've come to us and and flourished. Mm. And I think that the the ingredients are there for Odegaard to do that at Arsenal, whether it's under Mikel Arteta or some other manager or whoever. Yeah, I like him. And, 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 and you know, when we talked earlier about what could make this team go bang, as it were, I do think that the likeliest thing is a kind of dramatic improvement in some of our young players. And, you know, you look, you look at the likes of Saka, Smith-Rowe, and I think Odegaard has that potential as well. He really could improve with us and, and contribute a great deal um, and you know while we were far from perfect in the second half of last season I think having him and Smith Rowe in the team together mm. 
definitely did improve the creativity aspect. So I hope that one gets done. Okay, here's a question from... Okay, where is it now? I know it was on the Discord. Um... Okay, it comes from... Oh, God, I can never read the names because I copy and paste them into a text document and the, the, the font is too small. Quizino. Quizino says, giving a player that should have left two weeks ago the captain's armband in the first game of the season shows that the club have got no plan of what they are doing. Agreed? Mm. Your thoughts on... I mean, is it just to sort of spark yeah, the debate yeah, on yeah. the Xhaka being captain thing? Yeah, I read your blog about that uh, when you mentioned that this morning. I think it was this morning. Yeah. And I I had no issue with it at the time, I have to say. I thought, yeah, he's, you know, the de facto leader and the captain's not there, so makes sense to stick the armband on him. Um, but reading what you wrote this morning, which I'll paraphrase, but basically, you know, you said that it's maybe giving it to Kieran Tierney would have presented... Um, well, actually, you say what you wrote, because you know better than me. Um, okay, what I wrote, uh, I said it wasn't the, the biggest issue. I'd like to have seen him captain the side. Xhaka is more senior, but he had his chance and blew it quite spectacularly without wanting to relitigate that whole thing again. You know, I think there were more reasons for that, uh, which isn't to excuse him. I said the redemption narrative or the redemption arc narrative is strong, but I think making Tierney captain would have transmitted something new, fresh, and that people could get behind. He plays with all the technical and emotional qualities you want. He leads by example on the pitch. And while I understand the external perception of Xhaka is different from the internal one at the club and in the dressing room, which I think is important, it still feels a bit retrograde or something. And I just felt like that was a missed opportunity. Um, you know, I, I can understand it. Um, Arteta trusts Shaka, has a lot of faith in him. We've said before that, you know, the way he is perceived in the dressing room and among his teammates is certainly different from the way some fans would perceive him. But, uh, yeah, I... Without Aubameyang, without Partey, you know, he wanted his experienced man in the armband for all that it matters. I just think there would have been something nice, something new uh, about recognizing the 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 leadership that Tierney could uh, provide. Mm. You know, all the all the talk about um, you know when David Luiz left. Well, who's going to be the leaders? Who's going to be in this leadership group? And new leaders emerge. Uh, and maybe if one of your leaders is David Luiz, you know, you're not going in the right direction anyway. So I, I just would have liked to have seen it. I just think there was something a bit safe, a bit boring, a bit um, unambitious. Unambitious is the wrong word, but I just would have preferred to see Tierney. Now, look, the bigger issue, of course, was the team that he picked, and he picked Lukonga over Elneny. So that's a much more important um, decision, I think, than who wore the captain's armband. But, you know... Uh, yeah, I don't personally. I don't think it makes any kind of tangible difference uh, hmm. to the result, certainly. But I do think that the messaging that comes out of the club is really important at the moment. And one of the things I've banged on about is trying to tell a story about you know something fresh, something new, investing in young players, being a developing team. I think that's a way of sort of buying a little bit of patience, maybe. And 
I think naming Tierney captain rather than Shaka would have played into that. So I've kind of come round to your perspective on it. I think it would have sort of marked um, a slightly different era in a time where we're looking for clues that we might be in a different era desperately. Yeah. Um, that could have been an indication. By the way, shout out J. Emmanuel Thomas, who's just scored his first Aberdeen goal, smashing in a volley from outside the box. Nice um, one. He's at Aberdeen yeah. now. He's moved to Aberdeen, yeah. So he's uh, going up in the world of Scottish football and continuing to show... His really frustrating level of talent. <laughs> he is 30 now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow, nice guy. Wow. I interviewed him um, last season or yeah. in the spring or early summer. And he's a very uh, mature character now and um, seems very determined to kind of make a career for himself in Britain after spending a lot of time in Asia. So hope it works out for him at Aberdeen. Wow. Okay. All right. Uh, here, can I ask you this one? Because I think this is quite an interesting question. I yeah, know it's on. your turn, but I want to ask this one. It comes from Dazzy Pepper on the Discord, who says, something I've been wondering for a long time. Why do we not just blast as much money as necessary to pry away Leicester slash Brentford, etc., scouting and analytics department? This happens constantly in American baseball. The team achieves success, and then every other club picks off their brain trust with higher wages and a promotion. Why aren't we doing the same? If we're going to get torn apart by the architects of, in inverted commas, lesser clubs, why aren't we eating them? I will gladly blast Stat DNA and Edu into the sun for either of those clubs leadership at the head of Arsenal <laughs> so you don't you don't have to address the concept of blasting Edu into the sun but the rest oh of the right is, that's where I was going to start yeah actually, I, thought, but, um, I thought as much uh, well interesting times at Stat DNA I mean I don't know if you saw the news but Sarah Rudd who had uh, yeah. taken over there from Jason Roosevelt now left the club What's it called now? It's not called Stat Dinner. Arsenal, Arsenal Data Analytics, I believe. I mean, I think on the analytics front, Arsenal made a substantial investment in Stat DNA a little while ago. I think, you know, they paid more than a million pounds, a million and a half maybe for the company. Mm. And so I think there is a kind of, and, you know, they've been working with them for a long time. So I feel like there is a, uh, they, they're unlikely to sort of uh, break that relationship and start working with another team. I mean, Brentford are a fascinating club, but they have a really different model to Arsenal. I mean, they don't even have an academy. Um, they basically decided that having an academy wasn't a cost-effective practice for them. And so they run a B team mm. instead who play a series of friendly matches Um across Europe essentially uh, and use that as a breeding ground for their first team but it, yeah it, I didn't know actually that that happens in other sports that they'll just go and get a recruitment team wholesale um, it's not something you customarily see in football like even if a chief scout moves it's quite unusual for their whole network to move with them yeah um, and often there are kind of, I think there are often contractual things that prohibit things like that. So, you know, uh, when your exit is secured, you, you sign something that means you can't just take everybody with you. Um, mm. That might be a part of it. But it's a tempting idea. It is. An and Arsenal have got a blank slate, really, in scouting terms. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't have any. Uh, we fired them all. And then we hired a recruitment company to help us find some more. So, I mean, didn't... Mm. Am I right in thinking that... Everton tried this with was it the guy from Leicester was his name he came yeah he came Steve Walsh Steve Walsh yeah I don't know how much of his network came with him yeah but that's what I think what Everton were trying to do they looked at some of the the successful transfers that that Leicester had made and yeah. said okay well let's get this guy in to do it I'm not sure 
I don't know if he's, I don't think he is still at Everton, but I don't think it necessarily worked when he was either. So, well, the parameters were different is the weird thing. Um, he's now at Charlotte FC, apparently in the States. Is that, is that right, Steve Walsh? I don't know, because there's, there's Steve Walsh who played for Leicester, who's a different man. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I, I think the parameters at different clubs are so different that sometimes it's not always easy to make that adaptation. I mean, Arsenal did do this in a sense when they hired Sven Mislintat, you know, it was looking at what Dortmund achieved and trying to replicate some of that. I mean, what's <laughs> difficult then is... Go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, that you know, that's a smart move. But what would be smarter is to give a guy like that time to work. I guess so, but like... And, you know, I've got a lot of good things to say about Sven, but when he came in at Arsenal, he was involved in the signings of Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, mm. Socrates. Would he have made those signings at Dortmund? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, what remit was he operating under? What was he told that we needed? Mm. If he was told, we need a centre-half, but we need an experienced centre-half... Of course. You know, you can default to that. And I think, look some of the deals don't really stand up to a great deal of scrutiny, but he's doing good work at Stuttgart now. And I think that's with the benefit of time and being allowed to operate in a way which I think fits that club. And you know what? If we were heading into, you know, this kind of refresh, this kind of rebuild, whereby you're looking to fill your squad or or replenish your squad with younger players, a Mislintat-style guy, I think would be far superior or would be far preferable to um, to some of the alternatives, you know. But, of course, he paid the price because of the internal politics and Raul got him booted out and everything else. So mm-hmm. uh, it didn't quite work out. But, yeah, look, I can see why at that time Arsenal said, you know, what, what's what's the most – one of the most attractive things about, uh, about the way Dortmund operated was, A, they managed to stay pretty competitive in a league – you know, in a one-team league. Mm. Um, you know, they won the title under Jurgen Klopp. Uh, they were competitive in Europe, as we know, because we faced them. But what they were able to do was marry the 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 thing where Bayern came along and just signed their best players off them. And they would then reinvest that money into good young players. So mm. it was was their recruitment plus scouting I think that was really impressive from a Dortmund perspective. And if Arsenal were looking at that and saying, well, you know what? We'll bring in some young players. And if they do well and bigger clubs come and take them, uh, then we'll just get other ones. I could see why they went for that, but they never gave it a a chance to work. No, and Dortmund continue to be quite effective. I mean, look at what they've made on Jadon Sancho, for example. Um, But anyway, yeah, I, I think it's interesting idea i mean arsenal as we know and as you mentioned are trying to expand their scouting team i don't think it's you know quite the case that they're looking to you know uh pull one out of another club Mm. but uh, if you were going to leicester would be a pretty good place to start that's for sure yeah um it's time for your favorite question what's Uh, our starting 11 (laughs) well it's close (laughs) mark mcfall on twitter is our best option of getting results reverting to a back three? 
White got bullied by Tony in a two, but excelled in a three at Brighton. It would also allow us to get the most out of Maitland-Niles. Seems Arteta is trying to play a certain way without the players to do it. Okay, I, A, I don't think getting the best out of Maitland-Niles is a priority. <laughs> With all due respect no, to him. true, true. I actually think that the defenders we have, the central defenders we have, are better suited to a back three than... Right. I don't know that we have that pairing. I don't know that we have the dominant pairing that we need. Um, like I actually agree, yeah. I, I mean, right now, right maybe now? Ben White's going to mature into a really good back four defender, mm. but right now, I'd say, yeah, we look better in a back three, I think. Um, and, and you know what as well? I'm not 100% sure what the best back three combination would be either. But Andrew, you hate the back three. I don't hate a back three, really. I hate, I hate, a, I hate a, a back five. Like, I think you right. can play, and I've said this before, that you can play three at the back and be an attacking team. Mm-hmm. You know? You can play a 3-4-3. Three, three. Um, much of that is incumbent on the, the two that you've got, um, you know, either side of, of the, the back three. But I'm not 100% sure, like, what the best combination would be. Like, is Ben White the guy to play on the right of a back three? Is Gabriel the guy who can anchor it? He did that a bit last season, didn't he? I think he played there a couple of times. Is Kieran yeah. Tierney your left-sided centre half? The role that he kind of plays for Scotland. And we've seen that when he does play there, he can still get forward. So mm-hmm. where does you know where does that leave you in terms of the left hand side? Is Bakayo Saka that guy on the left hand side? So I mean I do think there are some some issues, but I I agree with the contention that the defenders we have are more suited to a back three than a back four. And to be perfectly honest, it would not surprise me one bit if we played with a back three against Chelsea at the weekend. No, it wouldn't surprise me either. It feels like it may be the pragmatic solution. I mean, you know, Callum Chambers uh, <laughs> looks like a back three player to me rather than a back four player. Ben White currently does. Um, uh, you know, there are a Tierney, you said, can play in that role very well. If we want to really get the most out of Maitland-Niles, uh, <laughs> this is our chance. I, I think... Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that formation. I think we would have fared better against Brentford with it because they went with two up top, right? And yeah. it really gave us problems. And I think other teams are going to look to do that against Arsenal. So there will be times where we may even have adapt, have to adapt to it in the course of games, you know, ask Tierney to tuck in and try and accommodate it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be adverse to it because Chelsea look like a quite an ominous team, I think. Mm. Um, they look strong this season. And it was nice of Thomas Tuchel to formally announced that Romelu Lukaku will be available and likely to play against us. Well, I mean, th- th- I, think that's an, I think that's another reason why we might go with a back three, because, yeah. you know, if, if Romelu Lukaku sticks himself on Ben White and they start launching diagonals and long balls towards him, I, I fear for uh, our young defender friend um i think he we've got rob holding as well who can play in a three yeah you know, he can forget he can he can you know um so yeah look i i think i think that is potentially something that michael arteta is going to have to consider um you know the the profile of player you need at center half now to to play 
with a back four allied with the kind of system that Mikel Arteta wants to play or appears to want to play anyway, we don't have those players mm. in the squad right now. We don't have them. So mm. if we're talking about playing in a way which maximizes um, the players that you have, maybe that's something he's got to think about. So... Yeah, let's see. Uh, okay, what are we like in time? Right, we've got time for just one more, and then I'll announce the winner of the book competition. Oh, great. Um, this one, it comes from Twitter. It comes from Tom Woolsgrove, who's at Desmond underscore Dex. And he says, do you believe Arteta messed up by saying he was unsure if Aubameyang was in decline or not? I just don't understand how he would not refute that assumption, even if he believes it may be true or not. I don't know if you saw this, but there was a question put to him by uh, a journalist in the embargoed section of the press conference where he, he asked him, you know, do you... Do you think that, you know, paraphrasing, do you think that Aubameyang, you know, at his age is is a player in decline or do you think he can, you know, recapture his best form? And he said, uh, I don't know. Uh, and then he said, look, last season it was difficult to measure whether it was a trend or a one-off. Uh, hopefully our job is to get uh, the players the best that they have. We know that with Aubameyang we are stronger. He, he scores goals and that's one of the most important things in this game. So... That's the that's the way that yeah went. the context yeah he, yeah he said I don't know last season everything happened individually collectively it was difficult to measure a trend or one off yeah um, hmm. it's quite a strange thing to say isn't it yeah yeah especially if you're the guy who sort of convinced him to sign a three year contract mm. and was very forthright about that being the right thing it's quite. An odd thing to say. What I mean, I saw some people talking about his press conference demeanor in general, and that like there was a, an, an air of I'm not going to say surliness, but maybe he wasn't quite as um, upbeat as you should be at the start of a new season. I mean, do you well, have I any- think I, I think there's a bit of frustration, not just with the manager, but within the club generally, about not being able to make as many changes as they would like. I think there was a kind of uniformity of a consensus that, you know, there could be quite substantial change at Arsenal this summer. And I think everybody miscalculated and misjudged how difficult the window would be to move Mm. people on. And I, I, my impression is that there's a bit of frustration around that Mm. as much, uh, you know, I know we're frustrated about that on the outside, but I think they're frustrated about it on the inside too. Maybe they're more at fault for it than us, but um, they, they definitely are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we we had no part in it. No, um, nothing to do but, with us. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, uh, I, yeah, maybe maybe that's why. I mean, who knows? Who knows what they knew about Aubameyang and Lacazette at that point as well when mm. he was giving that press conference. I'm not entirely sure yeah. about the timing of that. I but, still um, think it's a weird answer, you know? Like, it is a weird answer, yeah. The, he, he could easily have just done, look, he had a difficult season last season, but he's trained hard, he's training well. You know, we're, we're confident that he can, you know, score the goals and remind everybody, you know, what a great player he is, whatever it might be. He didn't have to, like, build a statue, but I, I found that answer a bit Yeah, it is odd. weird. It's definitely weird. Like, And also, with some players, you'd be like, I see what he's doing here. Like with some players, you'd be like, well, I don't know. You know, I guess it's up to him to prove it. And you're sort of doing a bit of, you know, stick rather than carrot and yeah. laying down the gauntlet. You know, if it was Cristiano Ronaldo and you said that, you'd be like, he's going to come out and score a hat trick the next week. 
nothing we know about Aubameyang makes me think he is that player I who, agree. Who, who responds to that sort of management you know it's mm. all about him being in the right place is he happy is he playing with joy I think all that stuff really matters in this particular case yeah doesn't seem to be a great deal of joy um, at the moment, but hopefully that is something that he can uh, recapture. And we, as fans, hopefully can recapture uh, as this season goes on. It has started in an inauspicious manner, an underwhelming manner, but hopefully uh, we can pick things up from here. Um, James, we did a podcast last week uh, about your book, um, yeah, which was great, and we had lovely reaction to it. Loads of entries to the competition and loads of uh, kind uh, comments about the the interview itself. So thank you very much indeed for all of those. James has got a couple of the signed copies of The Champ and The Chump to give away. Uh, the random number generator did its thing, and the winners are Binu Rajan and the mm-hmm. wonderfully named Horatio Wilson from Amsterdam. That's what he said. Wow. Horatio Wilson, uh, Wilson from Amsterdam. So well done to you two guys. I will get in touch with you and we'll get your details and I'll pass them on to James and he can get the books out. Um, you've had a bit of a media frenzy weekend doing some interviews and what have you. Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks so much to everyone for the lovely feedback we had about the yeah. podcast, about the book. It was really, really nice. And I think it struck a chord with a lot of people. And thanks to everyone who's uh, bought the book or messaged me to say they're enjoying it. I massively appreciate it. And I'll reiterate my plea, which is that uh, if you do enjoy it and you can leave a review where you bought it, apparently that really helps other people find it. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. And I'll get you the signed copies out ASAP. Groovy, groovy. Okay. Well, look, we've got a a long week ahead to stew over (laughs) Friday night. This uh, is where midweek football is actually useful because you can sort of get back on the horse. Yearning for Dundalk. Yeah. Yearning for Dundalk. We've fallen off the horse and now the horse is just standing there doing a massive big horse crap on us for the next seven days whatever it is until we play again is it Sunday for Chelsea it is Uh, isn't it Sunday a home game I mean look a home game fans back in the stadium I am looking forward to that aspect of it if nothing else yes Bags of rotten fruit at the ready as well. Okay, right. Look, (laughs) thank you everyone uh, for listening. Much appreciated as always. Enjoy your Sunday. Uh, We'll talk to you during the week and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market